Turn to Joel. We left off two weeks ago. Last week we uh, basically had the National Day of Prayer that we were observing, and uh, those of us who were present for that, I appreciate your having come online with me to, to pray for our nation. But tonight we're going to be uh, looking at the nation of Israel in the last days. And Joel, as I mentioned last time, is where we are. We're going to begin, begin in chapter 2 tonight. I'll reread verses 1 and 2 because they are definitely central to what is being done in chapter 2, although we finished with those two verses the last time. But if you recall, Joel had been commenting with regard to a locust swarm that had invaded the nation, uh, and it must have been a very terrifying experience the way he described it, it was pretty severe. And of course, in that region of the world, uh, locust swarms are indeed very large most of the time and do a great deal of damage. Just last year, there were two or three that went through the area of Saudi Arabia into Egypt and I believe in Jordan, and they raised havoc in all of those places and destroyed all the vegetation. Uh, they are a very very troubling plague when they do hit with such a large magnitude as what they experienced even in the, 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 the near time of last year. But in Joel's day, it was a phenomenon that he took note of and used it as kind of a picture to describe what he referred to as the last days. And that's what we're going to be looking at again tonight in much more depth, uh, the the very last of days that are going to be spoken of according to the Word of God in several different places that we'll be looking at tonight. So I hope you've got your Bibles handy and that you can turn with me to first Joel chapter 2, but we're going to be looking at a few other chapters and verses elsewhere in your Bible as well as we move forward. But here in chapter 2, beginning with verse 1 again, to repeat what we read two weeks ago, blow the trumpet in Zion, Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them. Now he's describing again, the last days. He uses the phrase the last days some seven times in this short little book of three chapters in length. And it's the very first of the Old Testament scriptures that speak of the last days. In fact, Joel is considered to be the oldest of the uh, minor prophets recorded in scripture, the earliest of the minor prophets writing uh, that we have. So we believe that it was probably around the year 835 B.C. that he wrote this during the time of Joash's reign. And it would have been sometime probably not long after Joash began his reign, which was a very young age of seven years old. Not much was going well for the people of God in that time, but there were men and women who were godly men and women who uh, were serving the Lord, and one of those was the high priest Jehoiada. And it was Jehoiada that raised up Joash in the temple to protect him from the evil woman who had taken the throne by usurpation. And 
she finally was removed, assassinated, and Joash had taken her place. And that's about the time, apparently, that Joel wrote this prophecy. But also, historically, there must have been a plague of locusts that had come through, and he's reminding the people who were then living in his day of how devastating that was. And again, he's using that as an illustration, a picture of what will take place in the last days, but to a much greater extent, even than what they had experienced. He says in verse 2 again, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. That describes what appears when locusts are swarming overhead. They cover everything. The sky turns dark, and that would be very normal, but it was more than that. He says, a people come in the latter part of verse 2, and strong, the like of whom he has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. So he's saying that there's coming a day when there will be something like this locust invasion, this swarm of locusts, but it's, again, just a picture of that event that he's going to be describing in this portion of the Word of God that we've got before us. Verse 3 says, continuing on his description, a fire devours before them, behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours a stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge uh, between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter all at the windows like a thief. He's describing all of the locusts as they're coming into the city and the devastation that takes place. And notice that there are a couple of things he points out. They are in ranks. And the writer of Proverbs speaks of locusts in that very way. They have no king, and yet they march in ranks. And that is apparently a very real uh, experience. When you see locusts, you'll see them coming in a formation, if you will, like an army, and they don't break ranks. They all stay together in that formation, no matter what happens. And it's interesting, though, that he begins to point out some things that really don't apply directly to a locust plague. For instance, he talks about the fact that before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. He talks about the fact that uh, they are like swift steeds, so they run. They, uh, their appearance is like the appearance of horses. These are descriptions of something that is far different than just your average locust. And if you are familiar with what the book of Revelation talks about during the tribulation period, I think you should begin to be able to connect the dots between what Joel is saying here with regard to the last days and the events that are recorded in the book of Revelation. And so let's turn there to take another look at what John the Apostle says about this kind of an invasion that will take place in the last days, during the period that we call the tribulation period. The reference to this is found in chapter 
9. And it's one of the trumpet blasts that takes place during the tribulation period. There are several trumpet blasts, seven in all. But this is the fifth trumpet blast. So sometime after the first half of the tribulation has already taken place. And now it says in verse 1 of chapter 9 of the book of Revelation, listen carefully, it says, Then the fifth angel, angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Take note of the fact that Joel said that the light of the sun and the moon and the stars will be snuffed out. This is a darkness that will take place, and I believe it to be a supernatural event, because what John is describing here, when the key to the bottomless pit is given to the angel, he opens up that bottomless pit to allow whatever was in there to come out. And it begins with this cloud of smoke like a great furnace. And then in verse 3 it says, Out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth. Take note of what John says. And to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Take note of what John the Revelator says, and go back to Joel and read again what Joel says. They are like swift steeds, so they run. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Make the connection. Joel is talking about the very last days during this terrible time that we call the tribulation period. It's known by other names. It's known also as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's known as uh, a time of tribulation such as never been nor will there ever be again, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. And this is the time that Joel is here referring to. Now John goes on and gives much more description about these locusts like creatures. But I believe that they are supernatural creatures that are released from this bottomless pit to again torment the people who are on the earth and it's interesting that he makes an exception to those who are tormented. Only those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead that God has placed upon their forehead to protect whoever that group is. Now we'll find, if we were to look through the book of Revelation, the answer to who that is. And I'll give you that answer. It is 144,000 Jews who were set aside by the Lord for that purpose of proclaiming the gospel during the tribulation period. 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. That is the number that God has chosen to seal on their foreheads. Now there are some who believe that is also a seal upon what we call the tribulation saints. I don't know that that's true. It may very well be. But we do know that it is at least 144,000 souls who will be spared from receiving the torment as these locusts, supernatural locusts, come on the scene with scorpion tails, and their scorpion tails 
inflict wounds that are very, very painful to the point where people will want to die. Now, if there's anybody here who thinks that the church is going through the tribulation period, I would like to challenge that thought with this question. Do you really think that God would allow people who are His chosen ones to endure such pain and suffering to the point where they would want to kill themselves? I think not. The church is not going to be, in my opinion, on the earth during the tribulation period. That's just one reason. There are several others. But you can read it for yourself and make your own decision about what you think is correct. But it is true, I believe, that whoever is on the earth during that time, with that one exception of those who are sealed, will indeed suffer such great pain and agony during that five month that is, is afflicting those wounds on those who are presently on the earth at the time. Going back to the book of Joel, reading from verse 10, it says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before His army, for His camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Who indeed could endure such things? Who could be able to live through such agony, such pain, such tribulation as what will come upon the earth? And again, Jesus said, I repeat what I had earlier said, that this is a time that will have been like no other time ever before, nor ever will be again. It is a time of great pain and sorrow and tribulation. The first three and a half years will see one quarter of the world's population dying. The second half of the tribulation, apparently another third of the world's population will also die. Given the numbers of our current population worldwide, which is somewhere around 8 billion people, that means 2 billion people will die in the first half and another 2 billion people will die in the second half, leaving only about 4 billion people on the earth at the end of the tribulation period when the Lord finally comes to establish His kingdom. And we'll be talking about those people at the end of our teaching tonight, if we can get that far, if I move along more quickly. But I do want to mention again that Joel is indeed talking about the last days, not about his present situation, not about the people that are witnessing what he had described in chapter 1, but he's prophesying about a time that is yet to be fulfilled, even from our perspective. He wrote this, again, if it is true that he wrote it at 835 or so B.C., he wrote this almost 2,900 years ago. This is a really remarkable prophetic statement that he's been making here, and all of the prophets follow exactly as he has spoken with regard to the last days. It is a time of great trouble, a time of great consternation, a time of despair and confusion, a time that God's judgment, his wrath, is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. But in verse 12, God, in his mercy, indicates that he is willing to let them have mercy during this time. And there is mercy available during the tribulation period. 
That's why I believe that there will be many saved during the tribulation. We call them again tribulation saints. And here is one of the invitations that is given to those people in that day, in verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. This is God's grace, God's mercy being presented to those who will be suffering in those last days. And I believe that if they are willing to turn, there will be salvation. The church will not have been there to witness to them. The only witnesses that are in the world at that time are the 144,000 Jews evangelistic Jews set apart by God, there will be two angels in the last half of the tribulation period circuiting the earth with the everlasting gospel. The people will be hearing the word of God. There will be two witnesses during the first half of the tribulation. Presumably, most people believe Isaiah uh, doesn't really say anything about it, but he mentions uh, the fact that there will be witnesses uh, there were other places. Daniel talks about the fact that there will be witnesses. The book of Revelation speaks of those two witnesses specifically. We're not given their names, but we believe them to be Moses and Elijah. Maybe, maybe not. We don't need to know. We don't need to know who the Antichrist is either. But we do need to know that the time is short and that the day is approaching. And that's why studying this important Word of God is so important to all of us here tonight. Because we need to know the details so that when people ask what's going on, we can tell them what's going on and we can tell them what's coming. And hopefully they'll hear it. They'll open their eyes to see. They'll open their ears to hear. And they'll soften their hardened hearts to receive the truth before it's too late. But that's the reason we need to know these things. Well, verse 15 continues and says... Again, blow the trumpet in Zion. He repeats the statement that he made in verse 1 of this same chapter. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom come out of his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? That's a really good question. Why should they ask that question? Why should they be allowed to think that there is no God in a day of trouble such as will take place upon the earth at that time? The people of Israel will begin to waken up. Not all of them, but a third of them will indeed turn to God in those last days. But the statement that is made here is a statement that the nations will be still against the Lord's people. And that is exactly true. Even today, it's growing. It's getting more and more intense. Do you know that one of our wonderful congressmen, ladies, Talib, wanted to have a meeting of anti-Semites at the U.S. Congress 
if it wasn't for the intervention of the, uh, the uh, uh, head of the Republican Party, McCarthy, that would have been a travesty to allow members of Congress to gather together with anti-Semite groups to condemn the nation of Israel. But they're not the only ones. The UN has condemned the nation of Israel for almost every single act that they have done in defense of themselves. The same that is going on today has happened many times before. The Hamas or the Palestinian Islamic Jihad have been sending rockets in multitudinous amounts of rocketry coming into the nation of Israel. Most of them are ineffective, thankfully. In fact, there's been, in the last two days, over 800 rockets sent from Gaza into Israel, except for the 70 that fell in their own territory of Palestine. And the vast majority of those rockets were intercepted by the Iron Dome and also their new system, the David Sling system. Amazing technology that they're having to use to defend themselves. And then they retaliate with a strike against the Gaza Strip leaders of Hamas and the PIJ, the jihadists, and then the UN complains that they're killing, killing innocent people. Well, how about the innocent people that are threatened by those rockets? Hundreds of them coming into Israeli territory. They make no mention of that. The world hates Israel. All around Israel are nations that despise the people of God. Turn to Psalm 2, and we'll see a little bit of a glimpse as to why that is so. Psalm 2. David is writing these things. He says in verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Guess who that king is that he's referring to? None other than Jesus, our Lord. He says, I will declare the decree in verse 7. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Put your trust in Jesus, and you are blessed indeed. The people of Israel will come to that understanding, at least some of them, not all, but there will be a remnant. There always has been a remnant that God has chosen as his elect, his chosen few. And we find that in the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, Paul talks about that remnant, and it's a good read if you were to take the time after you've studied with us here tonight to look through Romans chapters 11, 10, and 9 in the reverse order, 9, 10, and 11. But here in Joel chapter 2, beginning again, continuing with verse 18, where 
Joel says this, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Now, there is no indication in that passage that we read as to the identity of this northern army that is spoken of here, or people from the north. But there are many possibilities, some better than others, more likely than others. But I'll give you examples. Sennacherib, later on in Israel's history, when the tribes were divided, the northern ten tribes were invaded by Assyria from the north. They never were able to capture the city of Jerusalem, although they had tried. But they weren't successful, and they were destroyed and sent back to Assyria. They can't be this northern army. Neither can Babylon be, although the Babylonian invasion in 586 B.C. came from the north. That's how they came uh, although Babylon is in the eastern part of the world from Jerusalem, they went northward along the trade routes and came down from the north toward Jerusalem. But that doesn't describe Babylon either, because Babylon was not destroyed at all. Take note of the fact in verse 20, I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. Now the eastern sea is the Dead River. The western sea is the Mediterranean Sea. Now the only army that is best described with that in mind is the army that invades Israel in the latter days. And frankly, it must be that because Joel is here talking about the last days. So it has to be something that has not yet taken place. And the only invasion that we know of that describes this particular scene is the invasion by the northern tribes of Russia, Persia, Turkey, and aligned with Iran, uh, that is Persia, rather, Libya and uh, Sudan, and a nation that's not well enough described for us to know precisely who it is, Gomer. Those will come from the north, and according to Ezekiel 37, or rather 38 and 39, they will invade Israel, and they will be destroyed by the Lord. And it will be in the Jordanian plains that their carcasses will be found. And there will be seven years before they'll be able to clean up the mess. That again is a tribulation period reference. And I believe the Ezekiel War will take place sometime before the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, there are those who think it might take place at the middle of the tribulation period, and I'm not going to argue the, the point there because we don't really know. In fact, we don't know exactly how long between the rapture of the church and the tribulation period. It may be days, it may be months. It's a possibility that the rapture could be that which incites Russia to act in a way that is described in Ezekiel 38, because there in Ezekiel, the prophet tells us that God is going to put a hook in their jaw, and he'll force them to come down. 
they won't really be likely to want to do so until there is an advantage for them. And again in Ezekiel 38, we find that there are some nations, Saudi Arabia among them, who will question the invaders' reason for invading Israel by saying, why are you coming against the nation of Israel? I have you come to take a spoil. And that is apparently the reason why they will be drawn into the land of Israel. Along with Iran and all of the others I mentioned, Russia is going to invade Israel to take the spoil. What's the spoil? Well, if you've not heard of the Leviathan natural gas field in the Mediterranean Sea that is in Israeli territory, they are going to be able to pump natural gas to Europe soon. Their plans are already in place. The line hasn't been completely built. There has been some uh, uh, reasons for that, but uh, there is coming a day when that will happen. And by doing that, Israel will provide Europe with a very competitively priced natural gas resource against the Nord pipeline coming from Russia. It will cripple Russia's economy if that is successful. That's something that Russia won't stand for. That's the spoil that I believe that they want. Libya also and Turkey have claim to that portion of the Mediterranean Sea, although it is invalid, not accepted by the international uh, community. Libya and Turkey want to have that area for themselves, and they want the UN to allow them to decree that region as their own territory rather than Israel's territory. Lebanon, uh, where Hezbollah has been very, very prevalent, has been pushing to change the border between Lebanon and Israel to include a stretch of that Mediterranean Sea area that includes that field as well. So, all the nations around Israel are trying to vie for a way to get a claim on Israel's property. Ain't going to happen. God will intervene. That's the wonderful news that we find in Ezekiel 38 and 39. God intervenes on behalf of his people. Their iron dome will not help them. Their David's sling, a new technology for mid-range Rockets won't help them. There are other technologies that they have in place. There won't be enough to provide the protection they need against the onslaught that will come from the north in that day. But God will do it. And Ezekiel 38 and 39 describe that war and the result of it in great detail. Joel here is just simply saying that this army from the north will be annihilated and his stench will come up. His foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Continuing on in Joel's prophecy in chapter 2, verse 21 says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. 
So he's talking about a time that will be a time of blessing at the end of the tribulation. There will come a time of restoration. There is going to be a time when the Lord will set foot on Mount Zion, which we'll get to momentarily, and he's going to establish his reign. The millennial reign of Christ will begin at the very end of the tribulation period after the battle of Armageddon, which happens at the end of the seven years of trouble that is known as the time of Jacob's trouble. Turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah describes wonderfully the approach of Christ with his church, although he doesn't tell us his church is with him. We find that out in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. But in verse 20 of the book of Isaiah chapter... Well, let me go back to... uh, verse 1, rather, of chapter 11 of the book of Isaiah. It tells us, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. That again is going to take place at the end of the tribulation period. It is there that the judgment of the nations takes place. The judgment of the nations is described wonderfully well in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus tells us that there will be a time when he does come to the earth and he will separate what he refers to as the goats from the lambs. And the lambs will be allowed to enter into the kingdom because they were willing to help the poor Jewish people during the tribulation period with simple things like a drink of water, visiting them in prison, clothing them. But the others, the goats on the left, would not be able to enter into the kingdom. They will have to go into Gehenna, a place of torment, because of their having rejected God's plan, because of their having condemned and ostracized and persecuted the Jewish nation in the last days, during that seven-year period of tribulation. That period will begin with those people entering in, the nations and the Jews who are able to find favor with the Lord at that particular time of judgment, will enter into the millennial kingdom and they will live for the remainder of his reign for a thousand years, as long as that. Some may die, but they will likely be able to live for extended periods of time, and they will bear children because they will still be in their natural bodies. It will be a time of repopulating the earth. It will be a time of great blessing because the Lord will reign. Go back to chapter 11 again of Isaiah and read further what he says in the verses following what we just finished. Verse 6 says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. 
the calf and the young lion and the fattening together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who were left, from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. All of that to say that the Lord will indeed reign on the earth and he's going to bless his people Israel. He will restore the world to what it was like, perhaps like in the Garden of Eden, a time of restoration such as never been seen. He will do that, and the Bible is replete with wonderful information about that particular time and how a person who dies at a hundred will be considered a child because of the age of the majority of people during that period of time. So that's going to happen, again, beginning at the end of the tribulation period. So what takes place as we approach the end of the tribulation period? There will be armies coming against the Antichrist. In a final battle, they'll meet in a place known as the Valley of Megiddo. And the battle is known as the Battle of Armageddon. It is a great plain in the northern part of Israel, just southwest of the Sea of Galilee. It's a huge plain. And there have been many generals, Napoleon among them, who have said, oh, it would be such a wonderful place to stage a battle because it's so vast and level and such a beautiful place for war, if you would have that as an option. So there are going to be things that will be taking place during that time. And again, the Antichrist will be coming against a lot of people who are not willing any longer to let him reign because everything has failed, everything has been torn apart. But as they come together against him, Jesus then comes from the east. And he's coming with the Jews that were protected by him in a place that we believe is located in southern Jordan today, known as the city of Petra. It's a rock city. And it's there that that one-third of Jews that I mentioned earlier will be protected during the last half of the tribulation period. And he's going to come with them, and he's going to come with us to Jerusalem. And it's there that he will set his feet upon Mount Zion. But Isaiah describes it very clearly. That direction that he's coming is from the east. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. The question is asked, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Basra is what used to be the land of Edom. That is southern Jordan today, down by the Dead Sea. Who is this who comes from Edom 
with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in his greatness of his strength. And then the answer comes, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. This is Jesus speaking. Why is your apparel red, they ask, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And he answers, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. That is a wonderful promise in the Word of God. Now, in order for us to fully understand what is taking place, we need to also look at Zechariah, which gives us a little bit more detail about the arrival of the Lord in Jerusalem. So turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14, if you would, a little bit to the right of where we just were. Zechariah is one of the last of the Old Testament prophets, near the end, just before Malachi. And Zechariah chapter 14, beginning with verse 1, says this, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. That remnant is the one-third that we just mentioned a little while ago. He says in verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So as the battle of Armageddon continues to proceed against the Antichrist, suddenly the Lord will appear in Jerusalem. And when he does, then the scene switches from a battle from that perspective that we just described to a battle of all the people who are in that region gathered now together to fight against the now coming Christ upon the scene. And that is why the, all of the armies are now turned against the Lord toward Jerusalem. And it says, In that day, verse 4, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. That's us. All the saints with you. That's us. Do I need to repeat it? I will. All the saints with you. That's us. We'll be riding, according to the book of Revelation, on white horses with him as he comes from Basra to place his feet upon Mount Zion in Jerusalem, splitting the mountain in two, and it is there that he will judge in the valley that is created, putting the goats on the left and the sheep on the right, and that is going to begin the millennial reign, and it will end the tribulation period. And as far as the armies that are attacking him, he just destroys them in an instant. It is nothing for the Lord Jesus. The sword of his mouth is enough. And it tells us in the book of Revelation a graphic description of the result. The blood will flow for 200 furlongs, five feet deep, up to the horse's bridle. Terrible time, terrible judgment. 
terrible consequences for those who are against our Lord. It's coming. That's the day of the Lord. It begins sometime after the rapture of the church and ends with the coming of the Lord on that great day. Lastly, Zechariah continues, All the nations, in verse 10, shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. You see, we're at this point, we're finding the fulfillment of what Isaiah had said with regard to the wolf lying with a lamb. Everything is new. Jerusalem will be raised up on a plateau very high above the surrounding territories. And all of that which had been destroyed will be completely restored by the Lord in a miraculous restoration of the entire planet. All the water will be refreshed. There will be vegetation, even in the mountaintops, plentiful food for all the peoples at His hand. Those are the promises of our God. Those are the things that are going to take place in the last days. That is what has been promised by the Lord through His prophets. Now back to Joel, verse 25 is where I want to begin in Joel chapter 2, and we'll finish our discussion tonight with these final few verses. And he says there, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And again, this is God, the Lord, Jehovah, speaking to his people. But Zechariah, again, plainly reveals that to be the Lord Jesus. For we know, because of what the book of Revelation says, that that is exactly who it is that is coming to do these things, to perform these things. And it is in his timing that these things will indeed be fulfilled. What a precious promise to his people. And yes, this had nothing to do with the church because the church will have already been removed from the earth. But the very next portion of chapter 2 in the book of Joel is a very specific reference to the church and the ages following what the church is going to be part of. And so we'll study that portion of Joel chapter 2 next time, the Lord willing. But keep in mind, these are things that God has prophesied for our benefit so that we might know what's lying ahead. And knowing what's lying ahead, we might be willing and able to pray for those who don't know and to perhaps be led by the Lord to witness to them as the Lord leads us in that method of proclaiming His truth by telling them what's going to be taking place in a very, very short while. And those events that are happening in Israel, who knows, they could explode into something more extensive. 
It's only coming from the south, Gaza, right now. But there is a very strong likelihood that the thousands of rockets that Hezbollah can become a very real problem for Israel in the days ahead. Also, Iran is stirring up other places like Yemen. The Houthis there are anti-Israel, and they've got an armament of weaponry that had been supplied by Iran. Iran has many proxies in Syria, in Iraq. They are all over the place, and they're preparing. They're patiently waiting for the day that they think will be the appropriate day for them to strike. But God. But God. Amen, Lord. Thank you for that but. God bless you, my friends. See you next time.